Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. This episode will be on E.T., the extraterrestrial. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. We are super elated to be discussing one of the greatest American films of all time, Steven Spielberg's classic, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. This came out in 1982, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, based off an idea that Spielberg came up with. And this was one of our favorite movies growing up as kids. You know, we had older brothers. They grew up in the 80s, and we we had a bunch of 80s culture in our lives. But E.T. was still massive in the 90s as a pop culture icon and phenomenon still. I mean, it's huge at Universal Studios, at the amusement parks. The parking lot. Yeah, the the garage. E.T.'s everywhere. And we've seen this movie so many times, but we went to go see the re-release in IMAX on August 11th this past week. And I have had few experiences where I'd felt true joy in a cinema before. It happened at Top Gun, the same thing. But I felt so incredible watching this film i cried four times twice were tears of joy twice were tears of happiness i mean of sadness and (laughs) i just had such an incredible experience seeing it in a movie theater on the big screen for the first time because there's no other experience like the movie theaters and i've seen it a dozen times on my tv and dvds and and everything but et is a special film it's so magical it's truly immersive and escapist, and it's cinema at its finest. What was really cool about seeing it in theaters, because I had never seen it on the big screen before, is you can kind of, and I've seen it so many times, so I'm very familiar with the film, but in a certain way, it's kind of like watching it for the first time again, and there were certain moments of the film where like, you can just imagine yourself, you're sitting in a theater in the 80s, and in and you're watching it for the first time. It kind, You could kind of like get into that headspace of, this is the first release of the film, which is kind of adds this really special quality to watching the film. That's why I really enjoy watching old classics in theaters, especially in the IMAX theater, which is – this was a huge screen. In, it was like a r- true IMAX one too. Yeah, it was at Universal, and it was fantastic. And the movie just really is sensational. It's a perfect film, and it is without a doubt one of the best movies of the twenty of the twentieth century, it's one of Spielberg's best. I literally can I put it in, my, in his top three of movies. It's just really special. It's the greatest family film ever made. It's got so much depth and so much heart. Amazing humor, just like gut busting humor. The design of ET is so memorable. And then John Williams' score, it's one of his best. And when that music is playing, especially during the finale with the do 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 the big drums, and then the the, the what do you call it? Sim- the symbols oh, yeah. clashing together and then boom cut to black and i was like i wanted to jump up and scream like yeah let's go <laughs> it's just amazing and like you i was crying tears of joy and tears of deep sadness it's wonderful ron tomatoes critic score has this at a 99 percent almost perfect there are two rotten reviews it's always on there. a couple i'll get to the rotten reviews <laughs> later because this person is just an unhappy being <laughs> on IMDb, it is a 7.9, which I feel like is surprisingly low for 7 sure. Point, it's also 7. only 9. a 3.8 on Letterboxd. I'm a little, I'm a little shocked by that 7. stuff. 7.9 the, on IMDb, 3.8 on Letterboxd. I guess I'm, it just hasn't transferred so well generationally, generationally I, to Gen Zers, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. But also, it won four Oscars, including Best Original Score, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound, and Best Sound Editing. 
And of course, it was nominated for Best Picture, but did not win. And I wonder why it possibly hasn't transcended into the generations of the modern era, as well as a lot of older other older films, possibly. I think maybe because of the, the, the visual effects don't stand up as well as what people are used to seeing nowadays. But when, when you watch the film and accept it and understand the time it was made in, the visual effects aren't even distracting. They're actually awesome. And I really love it because you can see how just simple in-camera practical effects were the real way to do it back then. I mean, the film opens with this landscape shot of the night, night landscape of Northern California. Lots of trees with the dark blue sky. And I didn't realize it until I saw it on the giant IMAX screen, but it was a, it's a painting. I was thinking the same it thing. Was a pa- it's a painting. You can actually see the texture of the canvas. I, I think only in the huge screen that we saw it in, it really becomes noticeable. Because it was cropped to yeah. the IMAX screens because it was filmed yeah. widescreen, so obviously. It, it was zoomed in a little bit, the entire picture, because he didn't he didn't film in, in full frame, uh, which IMAX is. But it, it just looked amazing in that format, and it didn't really change the feeling of the film. But there's a lot of techniques like that, just matte paintings in the backgrounds, a lot of blending. It's basically the same techniques that Lucas uses for Star Wars, it's the same thing, but like when you have a moving character instead of a spaceship being laced over another image on film, it doesn't look as good. And especially because he has the luxury of a space, a black background from space with the models with a miniature flying across the screen. It's it looks much better than if you have a, a boy riding a bicycle over a landscape. But then it becomes noticeable. But that's the way visual effects were done, and at the time they were groundbreaking. Nobody thought twice about it. As a kid, it looked as real to me as the best CGI to this day works. This whole film is practical filmmaking at its finest. 1982, they're still pulling off some great things, even though the visual effects shots in this film, outside of the realm of the animatronics and miniatures and costume design and everything of E.T., the actual alien, the visual effects shots in this film are very minimal. They're only a couple. You know, there aren't a ton, but it's used so well and effective, and it still holds up today. And hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
the, the thing with practical filmmaking, even in the 80s, and why it still looks good to me personally, is it's still illusory. You know, films are an illusion. That's the whole concept of them. They used to be used as magic acts, you know, those old Vavillian films, those little shorts. They were magic tricks on screens. Like, no one ever seen anything like this before, and you could do all sorts of things with it that never been seen. You know, disappearing on screen and, and coming back. You know, that was like a magic trick that you would see on screen. So film has always been an illusion. However, I feel like because of the advancement in heavy use of CGI in a lot of major motion pictures, the illusion of it being magic or the, the magical illusion of film has kind of been te- like l- losing the feel that you have when you watch it. It feels less like a magic trick and a little too real sometimes. Whereas when you watch E.T., it feels like magic. Even though these kids are clearly mounted onto a crane in front of a blue screen, you, you know this, and it looks it doesn't look as... It, it looks great to me today, practically, but you know. You're watching it, you know what it is, but it still feels like magic because it's all practical. It's done in screen, in camera. It's an illusion that still holds up today. It's a great magic trick, whereas, like I said, the CGI bombardment in a lot of films today takes away that magical quality to what film used to have. Yeah, and it's it's not just movies. TV has such advanced c- CGI and animation, especially kids shows. Like the the CGI is really incredible compared to what even we grew up with where it was like Jimmy Neutron was the, the CGI show we grew up with and it looks terrible now. <laughs> but now <laughs> <All right. laughs> but, but that was the first ever independently made show out of CGI, One right? Of them, yeah. And now it's it's so intense and hyper realistic and even when you have like a cartoonish thing like Pixar does a great job of even though it's cartoonish and and, and you know it's animated, the textures are real, the movement, the hair looks real. So the advancement I think it definitely plays a part in Maybe a lot of people not thinking that this film holds up and maybe they think it's cheesy, thinks, think it's silly looking. But for me, I, I agree. I, I I actually really enjoy it. I think it works better in a lot of ways because you know that they actually did this on – like physically did this by hand. And that's there's something special about that. It's like before the episode started, we were talking about how watching this in IMAX in the theaters re-released last night – makes you want to watch so many classic childhood movies or like even more recent ones on the big screen again. Cause like for Sorcerer's Stone or Chamber of Secrets, when you compare those first two Harry Potter films to the older ones, you know, four, five, six, seven, yes, the CGI and special effects are incredible in the newer ones, but there's something about the practical in-shot magic sequences in the first one, the second one that look amazing and make you feel more like you're in this magical world and it's more of an illusion versus CGI. The basilisk, half those shots are real basilisk. Half of them are CGI, obviously. But for example, the things like the floating feather, the broomsticks moving up and down and hitting Ron in the face in the first one or Harry Potter when he gets his wand in Ollivander's shop, you know, the wind blowing, the lights. It's all practical, kind of simple. A lot of animatronics, Fox the Phoenix. But it makes it feel like E.T. It makes it feel like a magic trick at the same time. And, and you have and you're transported, I think, more into the world, more into the escapist element of the film versus heavy CGI with the newer ones, which I love so much. But it's almost all CGI in the new ones. That's actually – I'm glad you brought up that particular example with the first two HP films because that also represents a time before – intense digital color correction was becoming very prominent so the first two harry potter films it's not color corrected if they needed color in a scene columbus would shoot with the colored light so it would be like blue light in the mirror of Arisad scene it's a blue scene but it's not color corrected blue where the entire image has been 
you know, enhanced digitally to make it seem cooler, they actually used blue lights. And you can tell because, you know, the skin of the actor will not be changed, but you can see the reflection of the light, the colored light on their skin, on their body, and on the set itself. So, but nowadays we're so used to, and it began with Azkaban because that's when digital advancements in color correction became very usable and very, very believable, where... Azkaban is an example. The entire film is cool. The entire film is desaturated. Yes, they use a different film stock, but also he added a blue color palette to that film. And Fincher is an example who likes to use yellow, blue, and green. And the entire the entire image is corrected to that certain color palette as opposed to E.T., great films like this. The way to produce a nighttime scene is to cr- actually use cooler lights. And it's the cinematography and and I think that not seeing the entire image affected by color correction actually makes it feel like it's more uh, realistic and puts me into the movie better because the entire image isn't altered. It's just the lighting is what's changing the scene. And so for me, I actually find it more immersive when movies don't color correct that much. I think Nolan and Tarantino and PTA are, and Greta Gerwig as well are a couple of the few filmmakers these days who never really color correct their films to a certain color palette. They'll, they'll balance to what their vision is, but it's, they're using the film stock, and the film stock is their color palette, which is not, which is actually pretty rare these days. But I, that's why I love old films because it it feels more immersive because it's not edited too much, not just from CGI, but from correction in digital. But I love yeah. how like old silent films they were actually experimenting with tinting yeah, fin and yeah, like they tinting it. film. They yeah. have pink film, blue film for specific sequences. Like if there was like a romantic sequence between characters, it'd be like pink film stock and stuff like that. So it's been around for a long time, but in terms of the digital, yeah, you're right. It's very, still pretty contemporary and modern. And I, I still love classic films and you could even say Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets are kind of classical films. And this yeah, is a classic. Yeah, yeah. And E.T. The Extraterrestrial, let's get back into the movie, is technically a classical film. These filmmaking techniques aren't really popular anymore. That's why it's a different era and that's why I love Spielberg so much because one of the greatest strengths to this film is it's a childhood movie and we all know the plot. This alien gets stranded on Earth and he bumps into this kid, Elliot, who takes Elliot. him home with or lures him home with Reese's pieces and they become friends. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just learned that I kept saying Reese's pieces wrong. You've, you've been saying Reese's pieces forever since I was a kid. Still, like I, I we've you've been corrected before, but we yeah. all just let it slide. We're like, yeah. let's just say Anthony saying Reese's. I, I just grew up always thinking it was Reese's pieces. Never, I guess I never really read the label. <laughs> <laughs> but like ET and Elliot, I. Reese's Pieces are my, were always my favorite candy growing up. Until now, I had them recently, and they tasted terrible. You they agree. changed it. They, they changed, changed it. their. They changed it. Didn't taste like peanut butter. We were sitting next to the kid from it. Yeah, it. The, the kid from it and, and Shazam. Yeah, <laughs> and I, we were talking about. It. He's like, "You're right. It doesn't taste the same." I was like, "Dude, what are, it just tastes like sugar and nothing else. There's no chocolate, no peanut butter flavoring." So ET would not be a fan of current modern it Reese's tasted Pieces. Tasted like. Fruity Pebbles. Yeah, that, that did, was yeah. really weird. That's what it tasted it like. It was the oddest thing, so they must have changed up the recipe. It completely. used to be like you could taste the peanut butter. And that's like why that's an, another I think that might be one of the reasons why that was always my favorite candy because of E.T. It's such an iconic image to grow up with the Reese's pieces, E.T. grabbing them, Elliot placing them down. It became synonymous with the film. Yeah, so Reese's pieces, we're on to you. We're, we we want to come <laughs> tour your factory and see what's going on. The garbage! They tasted like fruity pebbles. <laughs> Not okay with this. I did not taste a single ounce of peanut butter flavoring. Anyways, back to the filmmaking of E.T., the extraterrestrial, into the plot. And then Elliot and E.T. form a friendship. And 
soon federal agents are starting to just trying to find out where the alien was because they saw the ship when it take off, took off at the beginning of the film. And the key guy seems to be involved with the FBI in some exactly. way. He's like yeah. some, or the FBI. We don't know what agency yeah. it is. We can assume it's the FBI or something like that. And Elliot and his siblings and his friends are on a mission to help E.T. get home and send a signal to his family so that he can fly away on his spaceship and be reunited with them. And the way Spielberg films this entire film, this entire movie, the perspectives are from children. It's mostly from Elliot and E.T.'s perspective. He does a lot of low angles with the cameras, but also, most importantly, what he does is he does not show any adult faces or, or little shots of them at all besides silhouettes except for the mother for like the entirety of the film until the third act when the agents start getting involved. We never see the adults' faces in the woods. We never see the agents' faces. We see a close-up of one of their eyes inside the van. But besides the mother, we don't even see the pizza guy. We don't even see the, teacher. the, the police officer. We don't see the teacher with the frogs in the science class and, and everything like that. So all the adults are just hidden out of frame. You just see parts of their body besides the mother. It's very Charlie Brown in, in that way yeah, as yeah. well. And you, the kids are kind of barely even listening to what the parents, the adults are saying in the film. It's kind of like when you're a kid, you don't care what adults are talking about. Half the time, you don't even understand what they're talking about because they're just speaking in code sometimes, not let you know the true meaning of a conversation they're having. And it's it's so fun because it makes you feel like a child. This movie, of every film I've ever seen in my life, nothing makes me feel like a little kid again, like E.T., because of the perspective that Spielberg made it in. And also the, the filmmaking aspect of creating a tone and Spielberg, he understands how to craft a tone, how to craft a style. This movie in particular is very notable for his filmography for the amount of smoke he uses. There is smoke everywhere, but it looks great and it really catches light. It's a terrific way of shooting night sequences uh, with this old film stock because it wasn't, it didn't have the latitude. And so a great way to produce light within the entire image during a night scene is to spread smoke everywhere, which catches the light and then you see the light pass through it. So it's definitely extremely important for capturing night sequences but even interiors there's smoke all over the place it's really sensational but he understand and he understands an imagery and how the imagery can be more important than you know making sense for example take the backyard they live in NorCal. There's like a cornfield <laughs> like right there. Does that make total sense? Not really, but it's great imagery for when that shot where Elliot is approaching the shed and there's a beautiful light pouring onto the scene, pouring onto him and then behind him. And then you just see the, the corn stalks behind him. It's really terrific. And then you have the amazing reveal of E.T. in the cornfield. Does it make total sense for like this northern California city, like town? And we saw the landscape. There's no farm anywhere. Does it make sense that there's a cornfield there? Not really, but it doesn't really matter because the imagery is what really sells the moment. It makes you uh, a terrific reveal for E.T. You have that moment of horror combined with comedy and just the beautiful imagery of the cornstalks behind Elliot. So uh, the tone and the style is infused into this film in so many amazing ways. And he understands that. Creating the moment is more important than just being completely realistic. I mean, it's an alien on Earth. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure a corn farmer in California is listening right now. Just How like, dare you? I have a cornfield. <laughs> but this, this film was actually shot in the greater Los Angeles area in the San Fernando Valley and kind of just out west a little more outside of L.A. 
That's why it looks so familiar to anyone who lives in yeah, Los Angeles. Anyone who lives in NorCal, it's very familiar to them. Now, we all love Stranger Things so much. And if you love Stranger Things and you've never seen E.T. the Extraterrestrial, I highly recommend putting it on your watch list right now and watch it next. Next thing you watch should be E.T. because you see the influence of E.T. all over Stranger Things and other modern sci-fi films and coming-of-age films as well. Literally, E.T., and Stranger Things are like hand in hand. So Elliot and E.T. are just like Mike and Eleven. One <laughs> one character is from is being chased on the run from federal agents and has superpowers, L and <laughs> E.T., while they're ba- both found in the middle of the woods by an innocent little boy and their friends. Just Elliot in the first one in, in the movie. Uh, they both have some sort of american food that they're obsessed with so uh, et is obsessed with reese's pieces and then 11 is obsessed with ego's waffles elliot and mike both show them the world and and culture and kind of start introducing to speaking even though uh gertie helps teach et how to speak as well be good they both have the dress in wig scenario the scenes to like spruce them up a little bit uh, they have the Dungeons and Dragons at the beginning of the movie, which is like the first scene in Stranger Things. Best friends riding bikes all over town. A lot of the characters in Elliot's friend group and his brother's friend group are like the characters in Stranger Things. The look is based off them for sure. Yeah. Dustin is definitely the kid with the, the, the headphones. headphones. Absolutely. And they love each other very much and they, they form an incredible relationship. And And the movie starts with the boys playing Dungeons and Dragons. I already said that. Oh, did you? Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't hear that bit. <laughs> That's okay. Just like E.T., they're playing Dungeons and Dragons in the kitchen. The boys are playing Dungeons and Dragons in the first thing of Stranger Things. So the Duffer brothers are obviously massive fans of E.T., the extraterrestrial. Even the scene where Will goes into the backyard into where he gets yes, taken yeah. uh, with the shed. That is just like the beautiful shot of the backyard. And E.T., the extraterrestrial, when Elliot and his family are going out there, those cool silhouette shots to check out. What's the noise coming from inside the shed? I, and I think the Duffer is the reason why their film succeeds. I mean, their show is so popular is because uh, all of their nods and references to Spielberg. And there's a reason why Spielberg is so successful because he's one of the, the best filmmakers of all time. And, and speaking of E.T.'s powers, I, what I really like about this movie is it's different from most other shows and movies and stories where uh, <clears throat> who have, of characters who have special abilities like of the mind where they could be either like scientifically experimented on or created in a lab or uh, superheroes like mutants or something, just superpowers. What's interesting about this this film and what I think makes a lot more plausible sense is, so I have a list of E.T.'s main powers real quick. So he has the power of healing. He heals through his glowing fingertip. It's shown when he heals Elliot's cut uh, and he tries to heal Mike's fake knife wound. <laughs> Ouch. 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 <laughs> it's a fake knife. Ouch. <laughs> E.T. always also has the power of uh, botanopathy, which is the ability to have an extrasensory connection with plant life capable of making plants grow without water via his mind. And we see this with the, the flowers where they basically are connected eventually to his life force when they're dying. He's dying when they come back to life. That reveals to Elliot that E.T. is still alive. He's basically Mark Watney, except an yep. alien. <laughs> I'm, I'm a botanist. I'm, I'm going to science the heck out of this. <laughs> Next, he has telekinesis, uh, which he's shown to have as he's able to levitate, move, immobilize, and manipulate objects with his mind. Also, telepathy, 
since he has a telepathic connection with Elliot, this bond connects them both psychically and emotionally and allows them to communicate with one another. And then also, you could say his final power is his high intelligence. He is actually a scientist on his home planet and has proven to be an extremely capable and intelligent creature as he adapts to human life so quickly, learning how to speak English and use objects to create the radar. So, Did you say levitation too? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> that was the first one I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you said healing first. Well, telekinesis is levitation. Yeah, but levitation where you can make things hover. Yeah, well, he had said that with telekinesis, make things levitate and move. Oh yeah, same thing. Yeah, this is not. This is a synonym. Levitation is uh. You're a synonym. <laughs> I you're a synonym. actually am. You're a synonym for me. Yeah, but what's what I love about the abilities in this is it's not. He's not a superpower being. He's not a superhero. He's not experimented on he's not saving the day yeah he's not saving <laughs> <laughs> the he basically saves himself <laughs> it's pretty selfish <laughs> pretty selfish he's, honestly you can look at the perspective he he's, only cares about himself he's like using elliot to get home like, i hate this kid um <laughs> leave me alone <laughs> i have to get out of here this kid's weird they're killing me <laughs> they're killing me but it's uh and if you look at the design of E.T., how big is his head? It's massive. So the, the brains of these creatures are enormous compared to a human brain. And the reason for that is this civilization of alien beings, they have advanced not just technically, but bio biologically. Their minds have been developed in such an advanced way where they have powers with their minds. That's where their power is drawn from, from the ad advancement of their brains, from their minds. And so they've tapped, they've probably started out as, Beings very similar to humans of a very good intelligence, but not hyper intelligent with no powers and abilities. But they probably over thousands of years developed the ability over time to use their brains to affect and manipulate their environments and surroundings. And this is something that, you know, we think future humans could be capable of. We only use a fraction of our brain power. What's the rest of unused brain power? People like to... Uh, Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> people like to hypothesize that it could be like telekinesis or psychic abilities if you tap into your full mind potential. So this is an example of these creatures have tapped into the full abilities of their mind, which is gives them the, the powers to manipulate the world around them. And it shows multiple times in the film, you know, the obvious high intelligence of E.T., by the end of the film is speaking English with words he hasn't been taught by Gertie and the other kids. Um, but also besides using phrases Thank that <laughs> Gertie starts saying to him, but he's, he's using sentences and words that, that we'd never seen in the movie of him being taught, which is really interesting. But also E.T., you know, his culture and his alien race, they're psychic empaths. They feel each other's connections. They have a connection with each other. That's what the the red heart light is in his chest and all of their chests. In the beginning of the film, they're all glowing red because they're connected. They're all feeling each other's emotions and feeling it's almost kind of like a hive emotional connection in a way. Instead of an, uh, not like a hive mind, mind but, but a hive feeling, fe feeling emotions. Yeah. yeah. And that's what he uses to connect with Elliot. And that's why they feel the same things. And the first time we get a glimpse of that is when... Elliot, after he's faking sick and eats, he's upstairs exploring his bedroom. He opens the umbrella, then downstairs in the fridge, <laughs> Elliot screams because Elliot, I mean, E.T. got scared. and Elliot felt the feeling of scared. He's like realizing, he's like, why am I, why do I feel scared? And then the scene at school with the frogs when E.T. gets drunk and Elliot's drunk <laughs> in the classroom. And he kisses the girl, he frees all the frogs. We're starting to understand the connection between Elliot and E.T., which is so great. But Spielberg's such a great filmmaker where... He's not just explaining everything to us. He's just showing it.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And keeping a lot of things vague, he's not explaining the origins of E.T. He's not explaining who the other aliens are on the ship when they come to get him. Is what it they his, were doing here. Is it yeah. his mother? Is it another scientist? Is it just another, is it like a leader of their race? We don't know who the other alien is at the top of the ramp and those other aliens. We don't have to know. We get to decide for ourselves. And... Just the red light, the the empathetic feelings is, is so interesting. The shared feelings, the feel, the shared emotions. He's not using Elliot to communicate, as his brother explains to the federal agents. He just feels ET's emotions. They feel the same feelings. Yeah, he feels his feelings. And Spielberg, like you said, he does a great job. He doesn't spoon feed the audience what's going on. He uses action to show the connection. First, the first time we see the connection is when ET mimics Elliot when he first arrives in the house. Which is really terrific. And then also in the frog scene when E.T.'s watching that classic movie and then Elliot acts out the exact same sequence that the actors are doing in that film. Then we can really see like they are completely connected mind in mind. And this movie has so much humor and so much comedy that really works. And I've seen this movie a bunch of times and it still cracks me up. Like when he kisses the girl but he steps on the kid's back. It's so funny. <laughs> and the drunk scene, when I was a kid watching this, I didn't understand that E.T. was drunk and making Elliot drunk because I didn't really understand that it was he was drinking beer. I thought it was just like soda and he was like having a sugar high or something when I was a kid. <laughs> but as an adult, when you watch the film in the drunk scene, it is hilarious and E.T. just keeps walking into walls and Elliot's just, he falls out of his chair and then he stares at the girl he likes like with a drunk face and she's like, this kid's being weird. It's because after he, she was looking at him because she has a crush on him and he, look, he looks back drunk, he's like, hey girl. <laughs> I love it. The comedy's really great. Well, I think my favorite bit is when Mary, the mother, hears something upstairs when she's about to leave for work. And then she goes back into the house, which is empty of kids looking for the source of the noise. And then she goes into the kid's closet. And Spielberg does this great pan of all these big stuffed animals' faces, which are stacked up beside each other. And then E.T.'s face is just like right there. <laughs> and she doesn't even notice it. It's so funny. And the, the comedy is just really simple. It's not slapstick where people are just like dropping things or falling down or getting hit with stuff. It's just really great, simple comedy, and to this day, it plays so well, I think. And this film won Best Visual Effects at the Academy Awards. Carlo Rimbaldi, the special effects wizard who brought E.T. to life, won the Academy Award for this category and his work in the film. The Italian artist crafted other classic movie creatures like King Kong and Alien. The film had a production budget of $10.5 million, which is roughly $30 million today, Justin, for inflation. And 10% of the budget for E.T. went to the alien creature puppets and props and related animatronics. Most of the full body puppetry was performed by a two-foot-tall stuntman, but the scenes in the kitchen were done using a 10-year-old boy who was born without legs but was an expert at walking on his hands. That gave him his specific kind of waddle. I I love it. And the design of E.T. is what really works for the movie because I love that scene where he first arrives in Elliot's bedroom and he's, you see his hands playing with everything. E.T.'s behind the table but his hands are just like checking everything out and playing with things and dropping stuff over. 
And that's like the practicality of it. You act, seeing his hands in close up, especially when he's grabbing the Reese's pieces. He's got like those two first, two big forefingers. I, I mean, nowadays it would definitely be CGI, and it just wouldn't feel right. And it's when, like the CGI shot of Predator's hands in prey. Exactly. Yeah, that bummed me out. I'm yeah. like, you got a practical Predator. Why are we doing a CGI, CGI close up of his hands? There were a couple of shots in Predator that didn't need to be CGI, but they were. I don't know in why. Prey. And prey. I'm sorry. And that it, those moments like that, they take me out of a film where you, it's like clearly CGI. When you see an actual object in the frame, you can tell your your mind knows the difference, even if you're not like actually pointing it out. But it just feels different. And then, but seeing ET's hands grabbing the Reese's pieces and seeing his hands move around the desk, it it something's really special about that. And I mean, the the design of ET is so simple, but it's actually there. This, this creature is in the room with the kids, with the child actors. There's light actually pouring on it. They're, they can actually cover and close. It's not someone in a mocap suit, and they're CGIing everything that touches it or everything that it wears or anything. It's it's a real thing that's really there. And even if it doesn't hold up for people nowadays, I think it looks way better than even the most highest quality CGI. No matter how perfect the CGI looks, to me, it feels like it's not really there to a certain extent. And I can tell, and when I watch a movie like this, I think it looks better. And there's another sequence in this movie similar to that that shows how intelligent of a storyteller and Spielberg is with his directing and execution. And it's not the scene where he's playing with the, the stuff on the table the first night, but in the morning after Elliot's faked sick and he wakes up with E.T. And it's funny, he's got like the bathrobe on. He like wake up with him. <laughs> he takes, sleeps in the closet. Takes him out of the closet. <laughs> And we have this great silhouetted shot of from the other side of the table watching Elliot and E.T. And Elliot's yes, like, yeah. like, look at this toy. This is how we get around. And this is that. And this is a fish. Fish. You eat The shark eats the fish, but nothing eats a shark. And any other director, I feel like, would have been taking lots of shots to do close-ups of whatever they're holding. The This is the insert toy. Insert shots. Let's do an insert yeah. close-up shot of this car toy. Let's do a shot of this goldfish. Whereas Spielberg, like we said, this perspective is for children in innocence and the wonder and awe of this alien creature. The camera is just hasn't cut, and we're just focused on E.T., with poor, well, not poor lighting, but just like dim lighting on all the objects on the table. It's we're all silhouetted, watch, We're yeah. just watching E.T., play with all these objects and that's the focus of the film is et it's not about the stuff on the table it's not about showing the audience every single thing that's happening on camera it makes you feel like you're there like you're really watching et because if you were in that room you would just not you wouldn't even care what's on the table you'd be looking at et the whole time yeah and that scene you're just watching et's face as he his his big eyes move from object to object and he's trying to listen to elliot in this foreign language that's it's a really i'm glad you brought that shot up it's really great it's really beautiful it's so simple it's just a big light out the window that pours into the room and that's it that's it for lighting and it's a long shot too it's a very long take and you don't need much more than that and he he understands the how the strength of a scene can, if it's a good scene and if it's framed properly, the less is more. It always is more to just go as minimal as possible and make it as simplistic as possible. E.T. the Extraterrestrial was also a huge success. And like we said, it's still a crown jewel for Universal. On a $10 million budget, it grossed $792 million box office worldwide. And that is, it sold 150 million tickets and translated to today's with inflation, that's about $1.3 billion box office. Wow. E.T. premiered as the closing film at the Cannes Film Festival 
on May 26th, 1982, and was released in the United States on June 11th, 1982. It wasn't even really supposed to be an, like a, an official selection at Cannes. It just kind of like, they're like, let's just put it at the end of the festival. And it got the biggest applause and standing ovation that any film had at Cannes that year. The film was an immediate blockbuster, surpassing Star Wars to become the highest grossing film of all time, a record it held for 11 years until Spielberg's own Jurassic Park surpassed it in 1993. In 1994, the film E.T. The Extraterrestrial was added to the United States National Film Registry of the Library of Congress, who deemed it culturally and historically aesthetically significant. Also, E.T., had one of the longest theater runs in the history of cinema and by nationwide release, basically. So some movies like Gone with the Wind was out for like four years, but it didn't have the full nationwide release the entire time. So technically that's not up there. But with E.T., I believe it's second place with the run that was over 52 weeks. So it was over a year long of nationwide in theaters. And even in its 52nd week, it made a million dollars at the box office. Wow. So other movies that have had... Similar runs, number one on the list I have right here. Let me find it. Where is it? Well, I have a fun fact about the box office as well. Oh, I got right here. Uh, Jurassic Park was in theater for over 18 months, so that's absurd. <laughs> and that's in ter- that's a nationwide release, 18 months. Not like re-releases or anything like that. E.T. was over a year. Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's film was 45 weeks. Star Wars screened for 44 weeks. Titanic, 41 weeks. Back to the Future was in theaters for 37 weeks. That's insane. It also holds, it still to this day holds the the number one spot for most weekends at number one for the box office. It was it was num- so. number one for 16 weekends straight. 16? 16 straight weekends. It it The only film that comes close to that is Titanic was number one for 15 weekends. So it was, it was number one at the box office longer than any other film in history. Oh, it also spent 44 weekends in the top 10 of the box Jesus. office. Jesus. But that's unheard of, like today, yeah. because well, so Top many Guns movies getting, come out. Top Guns coming around. It's there. coming back. Is that yeah. back in IMAX? So it'll be the top ten for a while. Holy crap! This movie just won't stop making money. And uh, going back to the Reese's Pieces, uh, so the company that owns M and M's is called Mars Mars Bars. So they own M and M's, and Spielberg and the filmmakers they originally wanted M and M's to be the candy, and so they reached out to the company, and Mars turned them down. And then they reached out to Hershey's, who owns Reese's Pieces, and they were like, yeah, let's do it. That sounds great. And it ended up becoming a, an amazing marketing tool for um, Hershey and Reese's Pieces because the sales for Reese's Pieces and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups boomed exponentially after the release of this film. And M&M's could have had that success, although they are probably the more successful product now. But Reese's Pieces had a gigantic influx in purchases because of this film. And there's so many fun facts about this film that I love. Like, for example, Ben Burt, who did the sound design for this film. He did a bunch of Spielberg's films. He did, he's infamous for the Star Wars movies, which we'll be talking about very soon on the show. He did the sound design for this film. And then it was difficult trying to figure out how to find the voice for E.T. Like, they needed something unique and that sounded kind of like an alien or something like that. And so he actually overheard a woman in a camera store and knew she had just the right pitch for E.T. <laughs> Her name was Pat Welsh, and she was a California housewife who smoked a reported two packs of cigarettes a day, giving her voice that recognizable raspy tone. That's great. <laughs> I like how he, like, purrs, too. He, pur- he purrs like an animal. Kind of, yeah. And the design was actually created by special effects artist Carlo Rambaldi. He used a few notable men in history as inspirations for the face of E.T., 
including Albert Einstein, Ernest Hemingway, and Carl Sandburg. So he kind of morphed all their faces together. So Albert Einstein actually has a lot of influence on the design of E.T.'s face, which the, is funny. The cast is so good, too, in this movie. These child actors really nailed it. Drew Barrymore, she plays Gertie, Elliot's younger sister. She was actually auditioning for a role on Poltergeist, but Spielberg felt that she wasn't right for that movie, but he instead put her in E.T. the Extraterrestrial, feeling like she was a perfect fit for that role. And this was her first big film role, and now she's a superstar. And she was, she's actually Spielberg's goddaughter. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. And so Elliot is played by Henry Thomas, and this has to be one of the best child performances in American film history. He is so sensational in this you can see his audition tape online if you want. But it's he, crazy, he's yeah. able to just start weeping, tears falling down his cheeks, and he made Spielberg cry during the audition tapes. And as soon as his audition, audition was over, Spielberg's like, you got the job, kid. You nailed it. So he's really terrific in this movie. He didn't go on to do a ton of acting roles after that, but he's had a few roles in his in his as like an adult actor you might have recognized him from. He, he reminds me, Millie Bobby Brown reminds me a lot of him because she can just turn on the waterworks, no problem. Some Some kids can do it just naturally and they can emote but this kid cries more than most actors can <laughs> most hollywood stars can cry like you don't you, you see rarely see hollywood actors uh, emote as much as this, this kid does which is which makes the the craft of acting is very interesting because it's it's such a revered craft and a highly successful one for those who do become successful and so respected it is very very difficult but it's something that even a kid could nail it's it's there's nothing like it in terms of a job or career or a craft like a kid can be as incredible doing something as a seasoned veteran with 40 years of experience it's it's i can't think of anything else that really has that can be compared to acting it's just natural man it's it's, yeah. a, it's an innate gift it seems to be especially for like kids who like have no formal training anna paquin in the piano another example she won the she won an oscar and she was like 11. You know, every other, every yeah. adult actor had been working for 30 years. Like, God are you kidding it. me? A little like, kid? I, I can't even beat her. She's so good. A little kid beat me? I've been doing this for 30 years. What's the Happy Gilmore line? It's like, you know what's funny? Is you've been doing this your entire life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, it, there's, the craft of acting is really a specific thing that you can't compare it to anything else. Any other craft, really. It's difficult to teach to bring it to that level, for sure. He, he said he thought of the death of his dog, which is what able to, to make him well up those emotions. You think Spielberg was like, think of Fluffy, think of Fluffy. (laughs) (laughs) E.T. was also originally much darker, and Spielberg actually imagined this as a spinoff of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where an alien race, this alien race, would be tormenting a family. And so it had a much different spin and also would have had connection to a previous film of his. Yeah, that's kind. That's sort of like the the start of the development because he came up with an idea of – Something like this from his childhood, which he wanted to tell a story that connected him to his youth because of his parents' divorce. And he had his own imaginary friend as a kid that was an alien that was his his buddy to help him get through those times. And he had done Close Encounters of a Third Kind. He was looking for another alien project to do. And like you said, he was the dark, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the studio wanted him to do. It would have been a dark take, but he didn't want to do a sequel to that film. And then he was going to produce a movie called Night Skies with the malevolent alien race that are tormenting a family. And then he came up with this other idea for like something more childlike to connect to that imaginary friend he had. That's when he hired Melissa Matheson, who was Harrison Ford's former wife and, and on and off girlfriend at the, at the time. They were married for like a couple of decades, I'm pretty sure. 
she wrote the script for him and based off the idea by Steven Spielberg. And the first draft of the film was called E.T. and Me, but then they changed it and came up with rewrites. But eventually she wrote a phenomenal script for this movie. And that's what the that's what it was based off of. And, and the shooting script was called A Boy's Life to deter people from under, knowing what the plot was. So like the secret name for the movie was A Boy's Life. A lot of movies when they're filming, they have fake names to prevent people from coming to set and word getting out. This was actually one of the first ones to ever do the fake name. Yeah, so A Boy's Life. Yeah. And obviously it's a terrible name for an alien movie. <laughs> but obviously no one would have known what it was. Yeah. And what makes this movie special is, I mean, you know, you rarely see... And probably never see family films that have such incredible imagery and such incredible cinematography. Think about all those silhouetted sunset silhouettes of the first the kids and that on that great hill on the street with this this red sky behind them. And also when the law enforcement agencies begin arriving onto into the neighborhood, such amazing imagery. And then also, I mean, when Elliot flies across the big moon. It's really stunning, and it, it's it's such an iconic image that Spielberg made it the logo of his company, Amblin Entertainment, is Elliot and E.T. silhouetted by the moon. It's just it's my favorite movie poster. Yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah, it's right there. Yeah, really special filmmaking and cinematography for uh, a film that I think many other filmmakers wouldn't really add special visual elements. It would just look cool and sleek and very high-tech and cgi but like not like strong images like that and, and another favorite aspect that i have to this film is the the government forces and the law enforcement forces they aren't like villainous like you would expect them to be like when they discover et and they're searching for him yes they're like listening to the conversations of people which is totally horrible and unethical but when they do find et what do they do they're trying to save his life and they are trying their best to help E.T. And and then we learn that the, the key guy who we think is this villain who's hunting down the alien, he just, for some reason, we think he's just like trying to snatch him for ill intent. We learn that he's a, he's a guy who grew up his entire life looking for alien life. And he's actually seems to be a, a great person. And I love the line where he's like, I don't want him to die. What do we do? What can we do that we aren't already doing? We learn that. A lot of people, and especially the doctors, trying their best to save E.T.'s life. It seems like uh, I really like how they're not villains who are just like trying to experiment on an alien. And this guy who we think is going to be the antagonist of the film is just really trying to help. I really like that aspect of the the supposedly what we think are malevolent forces in the film. Yeah, they're really the antagonists to this movie. It's you think it's these federal agents in a way they are but they're in the shadow. Spielberg keeps them in the dark, literally and figuratively, for yeah. the majority of the film. But really, the antagonist ends up being, you could say, time. And the, uh, the, loss, of, the loss, of e, of, loss of E.T.'s family and his people. And when they start to come back, that's when he comes back to life. In the sickness. Because when yeah. he dies in oh the hospital, God. well, inside the bedroom, it's, it's so heartbreaking. You know, I cried, like I said, twice during this movie. I was, like, weeping when E.T. dies. And that whole sequence when him and Elliot, Elliot's, because they're connected, they're brave waves, brave waves, brain waves are completely synchronized, but then Elliot starts to get healthier, and they start to separate, and E.T. starts to die. E.T. is just letting himself go, basically, because his, he's lost connection with his family. And then when he's inside the, the coolant tank, and Elliot's saying goodbye, and his his heart chest starts to glow. His red light starts to glow, meaning his family got contact, and they're coming for him, and they're close by. 
E. And it's so home. fun. E. And it gets phone going. Home, and then home, the home. heist to get E.T. out of there is such a great sequence. The bike riding sequence with John Williams' music is absolutely incredible. The boys, which were actually, that was, those stunts were performed by BMX bike riders. You can tell. They're yeah. pros. You <laughs> can tell. You can tell they're adults. There's too. actually a shot. There's, I never noticed it until we saw it on the huge screen because it's, it's so small in the frame. I never noticed it on a, on a, a home screen or on the phone. Uh, <laughs> during the, one of the chase sequences... The kids, it's a, a shot from the top of a hill, and the kids are biking around a house. It's that neighborhood of houses that are being built. And they turn the corner around one particular house, and you can see through the framework of the house. The, the rider playing Elliot with the red sweatshirt, he he falls into the ground, and he, <laughs> he just completely pancakes. And it's in the shot, and you can watch him actually fall. But they kept it in the frame because they were like, nobody would notice. And I never noticed until I watched it IMAX, on bro. IMAX and really saw it revealed in the frame. I cracked up. I was like, oh, my God, Elliot totally falls. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something about it, you know, when they're being chased by the federal agents, the bikes, the childlike wonder and awe, and then John Wim's score. And then obviously the first time Elliot flies, it's so incredible, magical. And I've seen it a dozen times. I knew it's going to, you know, it's going to happen. But there's still, when you see it on the big screen, it's so emotional. That's where the music really comes yeah, into play. Because yeah. without John Williams' music, it's not the same sequence. And then the second time that everyone's flying with all of the kids, it's incredible. And I love all the boys that are together and they're, they're there to help. And they're like, oh, there's something going on at the house. Even though they've been making fun of Elliot and busting his chops the whole movie. They see E.T. in the back of the van, like Jesus, arms spread wide. <laughs> Red heart glowing. Wearing a cloak. <laughs> white smoke coming out. <laughs> And they're like, let's get this guy home. Let's do it. And it's incredible. And they're all flying in the sunset. Like you said, the silhouette shot, the imagery alone is so much better than any of the CGI we've seen in the last 15 years. I couldn't agree more. Now, before we get into the rest of this episode, how about we head into our intermission? And we have a special guest for our intermission, our chosen one patron, Cody Moan, who's a huge supporter of the show. One of our biggest fans. Can't wait to talk to him about E.T. Let's get into it. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast besides using our coupon codes is become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. You get perks like personalized videos and messages, weekly bonus episodes that every single patron has access to. Our $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons have access to our Discord, which we're on every day. We do watch parties on there too a couple times a month. It's a lot of fun. $25, $100 tier patrons get custom episodes. You pick the topic, we do one for you. $100 tier patrons, they get all that. Plus, they are an executive producer on the main episodes of the show. You get your your name read off at the end of every main episode, as well as you get a private watch party, and you get a guest segment after three months of being a Chosen One patron. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to their website and use our special promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order. Our set is decorated with a bunch of these amazing posters, high quality, all sorts of options from pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable. They also have a huge selection of all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, so whatever your poster needs are, they got you covered. Remember, go to MoviePosters.com for all of your poster needs. And use our special promo code Raiders10. Again, Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped.com. Use our code 
Raiders of the Lost, and you'll get 20% off in free shipping worldwide. Do you want your own rocket ship into space for your grooming needs? I recommend getting the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer. This thing has a 7,000 RPM motor. It's skin safe, wireless charger, built-in flashlight, waterproof. You can use this thing in the shower at night. It is sick. I also recommend getting their Boxer Briefs 2.0. Anthony and I got a bunch of pairs from Manscaped. They are chef's kiss. The most comfortable briefs that I own. Anthony, how comfy are they? I love them. They're super soft. I love them. And they got a little extra room for your junk so that you're extra comfortable. I'm telling you, get the briefs 2.0. You will not regret it. They got cool designs too. I like them a lot. And the deodorant. I love the deodorant. The deodorant's awesome as well. 2-1 body wash. You know guys love 2-in-1 shampoo, conditioner stuff. They it's got a 6-in-1. <laughs> they have a 17-in-1 <laughs> shampoo, conditioner. Kidding. It's a 2-in-1 shampoo, conditioner. It's a toothpaste and shampoo. Body wash. Hey, man, we're going to get in trouble. They're be like, no, we do not have a toothpaste, <laughs> shampoo, conditioner. 2-in-1 shampoo, conditioner, body wash, deodorant. Manscaped has everything you need for your daily grooming needs. Head on there to manscaped.com right now. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Not only will it be supporting the show, but you'll get 20% off in free shipping worldwide. Now let's head on into our intermission. We are joined by a special guest, a chosen one patron, one of the biggest fans of the show, Cody Moen. He's going to do the intermission with us, then talk about ET. How you doing, pal? Doing great. Glad to be here. We're, we're happy you're here, and we appreciate your support so much. You've been a longtime supporter of our show, and it really means the world to us. Yeah, now chosen one patrons, after they're chosen one patron for three months, they get a fun guest segment like this, which is super cool to do. Now, he, we're, he's going to join us for the intermission, so let's begin it, gentlemen. Let's do it. So this is going to be the movie quote competition, and this one's from me. You ready? Ready. Two little mice fell into a <laughs> bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned, but the second mouse, he struggled so hard that he eventually churned that cream into butter, and he walked out. Amen. <laughs> what do you think, Cody? You know it? Oh, damn. It's on the tip of my tongue. That little mouse turned the cream to butter. Bless his heart. <laughs> it's Catch Me If You Can. DiCaprio is having dinner with Amy Adams' uh, family. Yes, sir. Yeah. It's actually said by both Frank Sr. and Frank and, Jr. in the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. you're right. Okay, here's my quote. <clears throat> What you have to understand is four days ago, he was only my brother in name, and this morning, we had pancakes. Don't know that. Say it again? <clears throat> what you have to understand is... <laughs> I get it in my actor role. <clears throat> four days ago, he was only my brother in name. This morning, we had pancakes. I have no idea. Rain Man, said by Tom Cruise. Nice, nice. Great movie. All right, Cody, you got a quote? Yeah, all right. So before we start, did anybody lose a bunch of 20s rolled up in a rubber band? Because we found the rubber band. Good oh, quote. Wait. I know this. <laughs> oh, man. Terrible uh, joke, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm stumped. Spider-Man 2, Doc Ock. Oh, come on, bro. That's <laughs> a good one. That was a great quote. That's what he's doing the uh, presentation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a good little... Harry Osborn, Oscorp cop. Nobel Prize, Otto. <laughs> Nobel Prize. <laughs> All right. Let's guess this movie release here, boys. Empire of the Sun. When was it released? I'm going to guess... Um, I'm going to guess 1987. Cody? I'll do... 88. Price is right. I like it. <laughs> uh, 1987 was the correct answer. Yes. Congratulations, Anthony. I, I'm a huge Christian Bale fan, so I have to get it right. 
All right. Guess this movie release year. Annie Hall. I'm going to guess. Wow, is this, this has got to be... Is this the 70s? I'm going to guess 1978. I was going to guess like 1980. It is 1977. Oh. <laughs> Off. Yeah, that's an early Woody Allen movie. Mm-hmm. Man. All right, Cody, what do you got uh, for a movie release here? So I got Super 8. Oh, good one. From JJ. Um, 2006. I'm going to go 2000 and 2015. 2011. Oh, damn. damn. We're way off. <laughs> <laughs> you said 2006? I don't yeah. think Elf Fanning was even alive. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> After my crappy guess. Movie pop quiz time, gentlemen. Ready? So, what popular war video game did Steven Spielberg create? Oh, good question. I'm going to go with um, uh, Band of Brothers video game. Cody, any guesses? Oh, Call of Duty. Band of Brothers video game. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Damn. That's that's a tough one. Medal of Honor. Medal of Honor. That's what it was the called. Game. He even wrote the stories for the first three video games, and now there's been like 12 of them, so he's making cheddar cheese off he, that. St- Steven loves money. This, he, he loves that money. <laughs> All right, Anthony, what is your movie pop quiz? My pop quiz is Kramer versus Kramer won five Oscars for actors Meryl Streep, Dustin Hoffman, director, screenplay, and best picture. But it is not considered one of the big five movies, which is the same, which is winning those five awards for acting, directing, screenplay, best picture. Why is it not? part of the big five does anyone know why is it not part of the big five even though meryl streep dustin hoffman director screenplay and best picture one huh i don't know i have no idea i didn't even know it won all five all right so the answer is because meryl streep won for supporting actress not oh. lead actress you have to win the both leading character categories for being considered the big five sneaky there guy it's a trick question Sneaky. Pretty good. All right, Cody, what do you got? All right, so I got, what was the first film adaptation of Stephen King's books? The first first one. one. I'm going to go with Carrie. I'm going to go with The Mist. It was Carrie on November 3rd, 1976. Brian wow. De Palma. <laughs> Brian De Palma. <laughs> I love that movie. So that was made because Carrie became the best-selling novel, uh, uh, like top 10 of the New York Times best-selling. And it was his first major mo- novel that was ever published. Wow. And so De Palma snatched it up and made the movie that like the next year. Excellent question, pal. Yeah, that was a good question. All right, Anthony, what do we got for haters, unsubscribes? Do we so, have any to we, bring up? We have both. We actually have a real hater this week. A real I one. I try to avoid them, but this one's really funny. So this guy, I'm not going to say his name, but he commented on one of our YouTube videos in our Spider-Man trilogy review. He wrote, YouTube has too many podcasts nowadays. I miss the days when the algorithm would introduce me to shit that interested me, shit that was creative, and wasn't being done by everyone else as well, whether professional or amateur. No matter how often I select, I don't don't recommend this channel. I keep finding my nothing of interest. Just hey, welcome to my podcast. 
I miss the days of equals three smosh, key awesome, and college humor music video parodies and skit comedies. The shit nowadays is bad boring to watch 10 seconds in. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Someone is unhappy. <laughs> Sorry we're mad boring for within 10 oh seconds, God, bro. Man. Holy crap. <laughs> the thing with the algorithm, it sends you stuff that you click on and watch. So if you didn't click on podcasts and watch them, it would not send you podcasts to watch. So it's your own fault, bro. Yeah. Stop it, clicking on it. Sorry, us introducing ourselves is too much. Is, isn't entertaining enough for He's you? talking about podcasts in general. Yeah. And we're just one of them that you can't stand. But like, honestly, that's how the algorithm works. You watch something even for a couple seconds, you click on it. Even if you hover over it, it's going to think you like it. Yeah. I just hope he... Uh... I hope he finds the right content for him. (laughs) (laughs) College music videos, I guess. Okay, next up, we have some unsubscribes. These are fun ones. So Blair Woodcourt wrote, uh, we made a clip about the year of 1999's movies. So you're really going to discount Rise of Gru like that? I see how it is. By default, this year should be the best year for for that movie alone. And then Joshua Narain wrote in our, uh, our post of our new logo. No matching shirts? Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> Although we do match the logo. Yeah. And then Enrock wrote in our bullet train review, wearing a Patriots hat, definitely an unsubscribed Go Colts. <laughs> Go Colts. Then we have Donald Maybe uh, on our terminal list clip. I'm not the first comment. Unsubscribed. <laughs> that was a good one. That's our unsubscribes for today. We have a great five-star review from Maggie Osha. They wrote, best movie news around. I recently started listening to this podcast, and I love how unpretentious these guys are. Very different from many of the film bros I have encountered in the past. Thank you for the five-star review. Really appreciate it, Maggie. That's so sweet. Cody, when did you start listening to us? Uh, I was in my senior year. It was like right when school was getting back into COVID, and I was just like, I was just running through my last like classes. So, I, I mean, yeah. 2020 I mean, started so we, we helped you get through those yeah, I'd classes say like, i'd say like a little bit before the main like lord of the rings episodes probably gotcha mm. oh so man been here for a while og yeah love it uh do we have yeah. a godfather patron anthony we do have a godfather shout out becca keen becca a big fan of the show also chosen one as well been hanging out on the discord lately too yeah she's great on discord she's been joining all of our watch parties as well becca we appreciate you so much. Damn, Thank you my for daughter's wedding. We made you an outfit you couldn't refuse. the episode, you became a patron for Godfathers. <laughs> and she actually chose a really cool movie for her review, Orphan, which is a really great horror film. The origin story is coming out this year. <laughs> but we'll we'll gladly review the original film for you for your bonus it's review. It's a really good movie. Yeah, it it's is a good. cool idea. Yeah. Now, again, thank you, Becca, for your support. On this day in film history, today is August 15th in 1939. The Wizard of Oz premiered at Grom's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. In 1979, Apocalypse Now is released. In 2003, Freddy vs. Jason is released. In 2008, Vicky Christina Barcelona is released. In 2012, The Expendables 2 is released. In 2014, The Expendables 3 is released. In 2018, Crazy Rich Asians is released. In 2019, Disney Studios is the first studio to have five films earn over $1 billion each in one year with Toy Story 4, Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, Aladdin, and The Lion King. And I'm sure they're missing all those box offices because the Phase 4 was a little bit of a stagnant one for them. (laughs) Uh, Happy birthday to Anthony Anderson, my guy Ben Affleck, and Jennifer Lawrence. (laughs) My stream recommendation 
is going to be Escape from Alcatraz on Amazon Prime. This is my favorite prison, prison escape movie. It's incredible. It's timeless. It's such a sensational cast. Clint Eastwood leading an all-time thriller. My streaming recommendation is The Nice Guys, which is now on Netflix with Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, a dynamic duo. So fun seeing them on screen. It's a great comedy. You got a streaming recommendation, Cody? Yeah, I got Starsky and Hutch. It's on Netflix. Nice. Love the comedy between Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. It's just early 2000s comedy that, I don't know, I feel like I can always put on and watch. All right, I'm going to need two things. Bacardi and Cola, do it. <laughs> I'm going to need two dragons. <laughs> two dragons. <laughs> oh, yeah, Will Ferrell's cameo. <laughs> All right, let's get back into our episode of E.T. Now, Cody, you're, what are you, 20, 21 years old, something like that? I'm 19. 20 19. next month. 20 next month, so happy early birthday. When was the first time you watched E.T.? How old were you? I'd say maybe six or seven, and it was on – I was at – my grandma's house and she had it on VHS and I mean I ran through that VHS numerous times. So it's a movie that, you know, a Gen Zer you still connected with, especially in the age of like superhero movies just starting out and like big time CGI. And it's still something that you found rewatchable and got a lot of joy out of, I'm sure, right? Yeah. I mean every everything Spielberg makes I'm down for. Like Smart Man. Yeah, I mean Co- E.T. just changed the way I looked at it, even from, like, movies at, like, a really young age, I feel like. Like, I didn't I didn't fully understand what I was watching, but I knew that it was different. Yeah, there's it, when you're a kid, some things, especially the some of the humor flies over your head, but uh, it's still magical. And we, like we told you yesterday, we saw it in IMAX, and you watched it last night as well. And watching it in theaters was just such a different special experience how was it watching it in theaters for you was it the first time you saw it on the big screen yeah it was the first time in theaters and yeah i mean it was just a different experience i mean especially in imax with the score just blasting through the speakers and i mean how big the screen was and how everything looked i mean it was just really amazing man cody you give me so much hope for young <laughs> film fans that can still appreciate classical films or older Hollywood big blockbusters and practical filmmaking from Steven Spielberg because he's arguably the best American director of all time. And the, the guy's filmography is absolutely absurd. If we, we are going to do an episode on him eventually, We're but saving him, yeah. it would take like 17 hours to do a filmography <laughs> director spotlight on this guy because he's made so many incredible movies coming out of Hollywood, coming out of America. And I love to hear younger film fans connecting with his older movies, a movie from 1982 that you, as a kid in the early 2000s, connected with and ran through that VHS so many times. So I'm so happy to hear that. It's incredible news. Yeah, I, I, we were talking earlier, the ratings of this film, it only has a 7.9 on IMDb, on IMDb and, only, and it only has a 3.8 on Letterboxd, which I find so surprisingly low. And I'm, I'm guessing a reason is that maybe the, the visual effects don't hold up. And I mean, you you grew up with CGI already being terrific, but still you've embraced this old style of filmmaking. Obviously, the visual effects, they are noticeable compared to nowadays. But do you think the, the visual effects, they still are as amazing to see, uh, even though, you know, it was made 40 years ago with old techniques? Yeah, I mean, w- last night when I was watching it, I mean, obviously you can tell that some things aren't like up to the standards as today, but... I think that like holds more of the magic in it because it's like you got their visual effects, but then you have 
an actual like a practical ET walking around like actually interacting with the kids and being there. Exactly what we were saying Couldn't earlier. Agree more, yeah. Exactly. The practical effects makes more magic. And like like you said, watching E.T. bumping around the kitchen, bump, <laughs> getting hit with the fridge door, bumping into the wall, <laughs> whether he's drunk or not, just being silly and goofy. There's something about just watching him in the scene with real human actors and just being silly and goofy. And it's yeah. on it's in camera. It's yeah. incredible. It's not CGI. We brought up earlier how Prey was a great movie, but some of the CGI shots were so unnecessary and took us out of the movie, like the close-up of Predator's hand in Prey was CGI. It's like things like that take us out because it gets rid of the illusion that practical filmmaking creates with that magic. And E.T. is the greatest example of that. I mean, Jurassic Park's another example of practical dinosaurs, which creates the magic as yeah. well. And last last night, I cried a lot. I cried. He cries a lot. I need to be. Yeah, I, I'm very emotional at movies. Every night. You, <laughs> you cry a lot every night. <laughs> I hear you weeping. <laughs> You're like Dwight Schrute. You're like, <laughs> Yeah, crying in the farm. Um, but <laughs> no, there's uh, no, his brother, his cousin, Mo. No, it's Dwight crying it's, because it's Ange- Dwight. oh yeah, 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 yeah. Qu- question of my office. Sorry, knowledge. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. But I cried a bunch during the movie, not just because obviously the 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 goodbye is so emotional, and uh, then also when ET's dying, it's I just was weeping, but I was also crying from like happiness and joy, like. E.T. levitating him and Elliot flying across the moon with John Williams' score playing. I was literally crying. And then also when the when the government agents are chasing the kids on bikes and the amazing score is just pounding. And it's just like it was such an, a perfect movement, mo- moment of, of filmmaking. And I got so much joy out of it. I was also cry- crying during that sequence because it was just so fun and it was so it was so magnetic and just – I just experienced so much joy watching it, especially on the big screen that I just I was crying like from happiness. Did you did you get emotional and choked up at all while you watched it? Yeah, I cried quite a bit. I mean, <laughs> like especially with just the opening titles, I was just like happy to be in the theater to see this act like actually be there. Uh and then obviously for like the last act of the movie from ET dying and to their goodbye, it's like you get like a minute or two of, okay, like trying to compose yourself and get yourself back from crying. But then, like you said, then comes the bike scene and then the goodbye. And it's just like it keeps keeps you crying. This That's the power of theaters is we've all seen, the three of us have seen this movie so many times each in our entire lives. We're sitting in a theater. We know what's going to happen. We know they're going to fly. We know E.T.'s going to die. We know he's going to come back to life in a minute. We know his red chest is going to glow up. But you're still crying. You still feel the emotions because you cannot get that outside of the theater, really. You can't feel that. If you're watching this on the couch, I wouldn't probably have cried, really. Maybe maybe a couple here and there. I do. But there's something. Yeah, you cry about all – you cry all the time. <laughs> what is this joke about me crying? <laughs> I'm kidding. You did it to me like two weeks ago. <laughs> I cried during movies I know, a lot. You do cry I, during movies. a movie, I will cry. You'll cry. But yeah. there's something about being in the theater where just, you just feel everything so much more. It's, it's such an event, such an, an emotional experience. and. We all felt the same feelings, which is so incredible to hear. I love that. Now, I got some fun facts for this movie, guys. Let's hear them. Did you know that Harrison Ford actually filmed the scene in this movie, but his scene got cut? I did not. He played the principal so, of the e. school. <laughs> yeah, he played E.T. <laughs> <laughs> he actually played the school principal. They filmed a scene, and it actually ended up on the editing, editing room floor. Also, he, he probably was the person that Mary was talking to on the phone. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. And they also used real doctors and nurses 
in this movie. That's why it seems so realistic, the jargon, the medical language that they're using when they're trying to keep E.T. alive, resuscitate him, the, the medications they're using, everything. And the accuracy of what they're doing. Exactly. So, like, those are actually real doctors and nurses, which is really effective. And I saw that, that most recently we saw that probably in Captain Phillips was a really effective use of a real nurse dealing with Tom Hanks acting after he's after the situation after has been resolved and he's gotten out of it and he's in the medical bay that's a real nurse talking to him and everything yeah because they're not actors acting they're just like a per- in the, the way that you know first responders like her or nurses and doctors or surgeons will speak is they don't need like just them saying it the way they normally say it is it works in a scene so i think it's a great idea to inject real life people in that profession into into scenes and movies would you guys have liked to see an, a sequel to E.T. or perfect movies don't need sequels? What do you I think? don't want a sequel. I want an origin story. <laughs> origin story. <laughs> no, I don't want anything. Yeah, no, I want nothing. Did nothing. you know that there was an idea for a sequel? It was going to be called E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears. For Melissa- the revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, Ma- Melissa Matheson wrote a nine-page treatment for the sequel. It was the follow-up saw Elliot and his friends get kidnapped by evil aliens with E.T. returning to save them. The biggest bombshell in the script possibly is E.T.'s name is Zrek. Zrek. I don't like it. Zrek was E.T.'s name. I don't name. like it. I don't like any of it. <laughs> it never got made. They also filmed this movie in chronological order. Steven Spielberg did this, which is unusual, to get authentic emotions from the young actors as they're experiencing E.T. come into their lives. It makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense because the, the kids – more likely that an adult will develop a connection with, like, an animatronic puppet. And Spielberg didn't want to release this on home video. It was to avoid pirating and preserve the experience, the integral experience of seeing this in theaters on the big screen. However, five years after its release in 1988, the studio released E.T. on video cassette, and it sold nearly 15 million copies in its first year. Wait, so the movie came out and they didn't release VHS is in five days for five well, years. Video cassettes, yeah. V- was the VHS back then too? Yeah. So five years. Wow, that's amazing. It's power the, the, of Spielberg. Imagine just like the fever people had when that came out. Imagine Universal's like, "Come on, Steve, just let us release it." <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, Spielberg. Um, uh, yeah. My when we when I got out of the theater, I took my aunt because she remembers seeing it in theaters forty years ago. So I took her, and uh, she was talking about just how crazy it was like everybody had et fever like from t-shirts to toys to candy i mean everything was et for a while i can only imagine the the pop culture sensation that was at the time well when we were kids it was still a huge cultural icon was et et was still everywhere reese's pieces was still a huge candy because of the movie the sales tripled because of this film yeah and you grew up just knowing et phone home it's one of the most famous lines in cinema history Mm -hmm. everyone knows it I've, what's everyone's uh what do you guys think is the funniest moment of the film i'm gonna say i think that drunk et is the the funniest sequence when he's just walking into walls and he's just like drunkenly like trying to pay attention to the tv the fridge hits him in yeah, the, the face yeah the fridge hits. <laughs> and also when mary when mary clo- opens the fridge door and knocks him over i think that's hysterical what about you cody uh yeah i mean that's that's up there or when she dresses E.T. up like, like a girl with all the wigs and stuff. Yeah, and that's then, great. Uh, a line that's always stuck with me is when the kids meet the uh, meet at the playground, and he's like, uh, he's talking to Greg, and he's like, 
well, can he just beam up? And then he goes, <laughs> this is reality, Greg. Like, <laughs> yeah. Can't you just beam him up? So it's, it's a great line. It's super funny. This is reality, Greg. <laughs> um, I think my favorite moment, those those are great moments. But I think when we talked about it earlier, when E.T.'s hiding in the stuffed animals and Spielberg did such a great job with all the stuffed animals have huge eyes and big heads and E.T.'s just sitting there like, <laughs> frozen and the mom doesn't notice them at all i also love when they're dressed up at halloween and she takes the photos of them and then and then yeah. mike mike and elliot say thank you and then et goes thank you <laughs> he's, supposed, he's supposed Ouch. to be dirty Ouch. <laughs> it's so good i love it him walking well there's very few times you pick up on mistakes in spielberg movies there's yeah. one little mistake that I think they they didn't realize when they were filming at the time probably is during that sequence of the Halloween when E.T. is a ghost and he's got the sheet on top of him and it's cutting from the shot of the kids walking but it's really just of E.T. under the sheet and then we sh- we cut to his POV through the, su- the two holes the sheet on E.T. the holes are super far apart one's like at the top of his face <laughs> the other one's like on his shoulders <laughs> I don't think they realized how far apart the holes were at the time yeah. when they were filming they probably like had to get it real quick yeah. because it was a sunset shot but when, every time I watch it, I'm like, the holes are kind of off, but I still accept it. I don't even care. A, a moment I really love is when Drew Barrymore's Gertie, she walks out of the hallway with the, with, what do you call the thing? The, the wagon? The wagon. And her mom's like, what are you doing, Gertie? She's like, I'm going to play in Elliot's room. And she's just <laughs> completely just trying to be as unsuspicious as possible. I thought it was really cute and so funny. Yeah, because kids, they don't get along very well. Siblings. Yeah. <laughs> What do you guys think was the most emotional moment of the movie? It's tough to choose. For me, the first time that Elliot flew with E.T. was really incredible, very emotional. But also the entire sequence of when E.T. and Elliot are both dying, which lasts about 10 minutes from when they're in the woods and then his brother finds E.T. at the bottom of the river and the stream. That's really emotional because you think E.T.'s dead. His body's just laying there. Elliot's also dying there in the bathroom. E.T.'s now... I love very... how James chose six moments already. I'm just talking about the entire <laughs> sequence. The entire sequence. You asked me. <laughs> I'm running through the... different days of the movie. There's the same Give scene. me one, one emotional moment. Just one. What's your most emotional moment? When they're dying okay, together. Okay, so when they're dying. When they're dying together in the hospital, which I was getting to. Well, not the hospital, the, the makeshift So when the hospital. movie first starts, <laughs> So, you know, credits roll. <laughs> so when Elliot's, Elliot and E.T. are dying, but then E.T. starts to die by himself, and Elliot starts to get healthier, and E.T. just fully dies. That, I think, is the most emotional moment for me because Elliot's screaming, you're killing him. He's asking E.T. to stay, stay with me, stay with me here. I can take care of you. And E.T. just goes, man, that gets me. What about you, Cody? (laughs) 16 scenes. (laughs) Top scene would probably be when all the scientists leave and they're letting uh, Elliot say goodbye alone. And he's ready to, to like accept that he's dead and he closes the door and then Right as the door closes, you can see his heart kind of glow red a little bit. And then, uh, God, yeah, it just gets to me. And then the plant yeah, growing up again. Yeah, great moment. My, I think the motion, the goodbye is the most emotional for me. It gets me. And the way he says goodbye to each kid, he has a different connection to the thing. He goes, he says, be good to Gertie. And he, he thanks Mike. And then the goodbye with Elliot is so emotional. The way they hug and the way... He asks Elliot to come, and then Elliot asks him to stay. 
it just it's it kills me and i i just weep every time i see that scene and then what's he say to elliot he says i'll be in here i will always, always be, be here right here right here in his mind and, yeah and that's the incredible. connection they'll always be connected so so sweet that's yeah. that that's the oh my god it's so great so we talked about earlier how et has a 99 percent rating on rotten tomatoes and <laughs> there's a really bad rotten review this guy gave so i, I want to share it with you with Let's you too what's the uh paper or newspaper or? his name's don mckeller he wrote this review and i think it was 2002 some random newspaper oh. but he's a top critic on rotten tomatoes oh. and so he gave it a rotten review and he had never seen it for a long time then he finally watched it in 2002 get that a movie critic hadn't seen one of the greatest american films of all time so sounds like a he's top created, critic. created his job so this is a quote from his article E.T. is a dog movie. Genre-wise, I mean, it's about a boy meeting a dog, naming it, taming it, learning from it, and growing up. Of course, the genre is superficially disguised as science fiction, as was the fashion of the, at the time. Star Wars, Alien, Outland, and Blade Runner are among the many other films of the period that were deliberate sci-fi updates of established genres. But in the case of E.T., there's no way to overlook the dog yarn genealogy. The script makes things quite clear with lines like, I found him, I'm keeping him. Now, I think this guy thinks he did something really clever <laughs> connecting E.T. to a dog story, completely forgetting the fact that he is an alien from outer space. He develops an incredible bond with his boy. He has superpowers, and it's just the most amazing magical movie of all time. And the fact that you hate it and do not like it makes, and you think you're smarter than everybody because you, oh, it's a dog movie. So this guy just hates movies in general. Probably pretty unhappy in real life. But <laughs> come on, man, ET's a dog movie. Out of it's a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. You just had to be the outlier, man. Can't believe it. Bitter, bitter. I I'm really shocked by the 3.8 on Letterboxd. I find that really surprising. That's such a low score for Letterboxd. Because there are movies that I think are pretty good. They're okay. They're like higher ratings than that. It's I think odd. it's recency bias. Letterboxd is a big time with recency bias because I think there's just a younger generation on Letterboxd for the most part. So I think that's why it's so low. And a lot of these people probably at least kids haven't even seen it probably. Or maybe they saw it once. Like we said, not everyone's like Cody and really gets older films and, and likes and appreciates them so much. So I think maybe that's an issue. What, what do you think, Cody, since you're the the Generation Z here? <laughs> I mean, I'm on Letterboxd, but it's I'm not writing out full reviews. Like, I'll give, like, a movie a rating here and there if I'm really in, into it. But I can definitely get the bias because, I mean, I feel like every time I'm on there, the top films are, like, Spider-Man No Way Home and, like, Joker and, like, new stuff like that. Nothing against those films, but... They definitely need to like go back and watch older films for sure. That's a great point because if you look at Letterboxd the high and you sort movies by highest rated, the most of the the most the vast majority of the movies at the highest rated overall rating are all modern movies. Yeah, recency bias, yeah. you know, that plays into effect a lot a great of culture point. stuff like that, just TV and film in general. Can but, we just talk about John Williams' score? It's it's unbelievable. Sensational. I've been listening to it. I got into the ET star uh score of his from like 2 years ago. I started listening to it cuz I hadn't really heard it in a while. And I forgot how incredible it was. And I binged the hell out of it for like three months straight last year. I was obsessed with it. I was listening to it all the time. But it's just like a lot of John Williams movies we talk about it all the time. We'll talk about it in the Star Wars episode that's coming out soon. His music is the most important to the films he scores of all composers in the history of cinema for sure. Like him, Bernard Herrmann, Hans Zimmer, they're integral to the storytelling. But there's something about John Williams he's able to capture 
what he did with E.T., with Star Wars, with the Harry Potter franchise, these these concepts and these emotions that seem impossible to create with music to enhance and uplift films like this, it's unheard of. He's just the goat, man. And we saw this with our buddy who's a music expert, and he was like, we walked away. He's like, man, John Williams, man. <laughs> <laughs> he's operating on so many yeah. levels. It's, it's amazing what he can do. How And he is, he is the conductor of the orchestra as well. He writes every piece of music. So a lot of composers, they get help from... They're like protégés or assistants helping fill in spots of movies that that composer might not have time to do. But John Williams is a, a pretty rare composer who does every every single note you hear. He does it himself from scratch. And what he comes up with with his themes, his musical cues, they're so special. And this movie in particular, like when the when the at the last scene and you hear the big drums and the the themes just played and. You're going through all your feelings, and then it just crescendos, and then cuts to black. And uh, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It it really is the music combined with the editing that really creates those special moments. So he's so, so important and vital to films like this really becoming something special. I, I love that, like, with John Williams, I mean, and with other composers, like, you can tell his it's him. Like even if you say if you didn't know it was him doing that movie, like you can tell. Like I, every time I watch E.T. or Harry Potter or like Indiana Jones, like I always get like little subtle hints of other movies that I've watched of that he's composed. Hundred percent. He's the man. He's the goat. He's the guy. Hans is like my favorite, but I mean, I you can't I, deny John Williams is the best of all time. Listen to the E.T. soundtrack by like just on Spotify or Apple Podcast or, or on Apple or something. It's absolutely sensational. And I guarantee you, Hans would Hans Zimmer would personally say, "Yeah, John Williams is the best to ever do." Oh, it. I think he's quoted saying yeah, that, he a, bunch said of that times. a bunch. Yeah, he knows that. I mean, I don't, Hans not the goat, but he's like my most listened to artist Same. of all time. Same, you know, but it's different. Um, you guys got anything else to talk about? I, I think we've hit pretty much everything. Yeah, I got. I, I'm happy. I think I got all my fun facts yeah. out of the way as well. All sorts of stuff. I just love this movie so much. And it was such a rare treat to see it in cinemas and theaters. They're doing Jaws at IMAX next month in September. Can't wait to check that out for sure. But me and Anthony were talking before the episode. We wish studios would do more releases, re-releases of great movies. Like if they did a re-release of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, like they would make millions of dollars. Or like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Chamber of Secrets, these great cinematic events that we haven't been able to experience since we first saw them in theaters so long ago. I, I wish they did more events like this. Maybe they're going to start doing it more often because they're flirting with the idea of like these great all-time Spielberg movies with E.T. and Jaws. But Cody, if you got to choose like five movies to see in theaters again that you haven't seen in a long time in theaters, what, what would you pick? Uh, I'd probably do Jurassic Park. Maybe like Ferris Bueller. Um, and then I'd probably say Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. I'm nice. a big fan. Nice. Nice. We saw The Matrix this year too in IMAX. Yeah. So seeing that again, maybe my, my one of my most watched movies of all time. It was still seeing it, like seeing it for the first time in theaters when we saw it in IMAX. Yeah, it was wonderful. Really so wonderful. That was an incredible release. So hopefully... They start doing more stuff like this regularly because this is, I'm sure there's money to be made. You don't have to make a new movie. You just re-release it. Yeah, they, they should start doing it more often. I would. That's what these I think this is like a test run for IMAX because uh, it's only IMAX screens are only playing it. So I think they're testing out the waters of 
playing classic movies on a national scale. I so know, I hope it goes I well. I know these studios are just worried about new things, making money off new properties, new projects, new films. But like you can, you got our stuck. theater was full. Yeah, it was, was your theater pretty full? Oh, I'm back home in the background, but I was. It was probably seven other people in the whole theater, and I was oh, like, oh damn. It was just like kind of like yeah. sad, but it was like. Most kids aren't going to go see E.T. now. Yeah. No superheroes. Superheroes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Cody, thanks for being a Chosen One patron, a great friend of the show, and a part of the show. Thanks for coming on. Hope you enjoyed joining the show as your your Patreon Chosen One guest segment. Epic. It was a blast. You're you're the coolest. Any final words, guys? I love this movie. It's, It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and everybody... All ages should watch this film. Cody? Yeah, I mean, just get ready to cry if you're, <laughs> it's going to be your first time watching. This is a magical film unlike any other. Thanks so much for tuning in to our episode on E.T., the extraterrestrial. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care. Ouch. Ouch. Elliot. Hell yeah. <laughs> this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, John A. Graz, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Calvin Cam, and Lauren Smertz. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.